Welcome to another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study, a teaching podcast from Faith on Hill Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. My name is Adam, and while I put 20 minutes on the timer, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, verse 1, says, Make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. It is to be square, a cubit long and a cubit wide, and two cubits high, its horns of one piece with it. Overlay the top and all the sides of the horns with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Make two gold rings for the altar below the molding, two on each of the opposite sides to hold the poles used to carry it. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Put the altar in front of the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant of the Law before the atonement cover that is over the tablets of the Covenant Law where I meet with you. Now you can go on Google Images and you can search uh, the incense altar in the temple or uh, something similar. And you'll find what people think this would have looked like based on the descriptions. But the idea is that this is where the the sweet-smelling, fragrant incense offerings were to be done. And then there was instructions on how to make it and even how to transport it. Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight. So incense burns regularly before the Lord for the generations to come. Do not offer on this altar any other incense or burnt offering or grain offering. Do not pour a drink offering on it. Once a year, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to Yahweh. So God is saying that, hey, this thing has a purpose. And I want you to use it for that purpose. Don't use it for something that I didn't intend it to be used for. Use it for the thing that I, I had you make it for. And, and this is how uh, you are to treat it. And this is what its purpose is. And, and so he's giving very clear instructions about it. It wasn't the place where you sacrificed animals. It wasn't the place where you made your drink offerings or your grain offerings. Uh, it was allowed to be touched with the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. But other than that, it was only for the purpose of burning this fragrant incense offering before the Lord and only the type that was prescribed. Not just any uh, offering could be made on there. Not just any fragrance offering could be made. Only that which God prescribed. God has designed people and things for purposes. And we can either choose to live in that design, to live in that purpose, or not. God has built us with certain things. Let me give you an example. Worship. It is within the heart of humanity to worship something. God built us that way. And we can choose, I can choose, I can worship the true and living and eternal God, creator of the entire universe, who made heaven and earth, who he himself lowered himself and became a a human man so that he might make the way of forgiveness of my sins and bridge the gap between himself and us. Or I can choose to worship 
the creation, whether that's a person, a celebrity, uh, the, the creation itself, the, the plants, the animals. I can choose to worship my own self. I can choose to worship money. I can choose to worship power. I can choose to worship fame. I can choose to worship sex. I can choose things to worship. Everyone has a choice. We were designed to worship something. Just as this incense uh, altar was designed for a specific purpose, to burn that aroma before the Lord and before the people. And God says, I want you to use this thing for the purpose I, I created it for. What's the purpose that God made you for? And we can choose to live in it or we can choose to walk our own path. And we love walking our own path. That's like the greatest thing ever, right? The person who chooses their go their own way. That's the person that we look up to as a society. I want to be the person that goes God's way and live in his plans and his purposes for me. I've I found that I haven't regretted it. It's not always easy, but it's the good way. Now, why is it that he's so sent on them um, burning these uh, incense twice a day? Uh, I've said this before on this podcast, but I will say it again and again and again. Most of the time, people look for these really deep spiritual meanings in the Bible, and it's often just a practical reality. God wanted that place to smell good. If you're, if you're doing animal sacrifice, there's going to be smells that aren't pleasant. The smell of of butchering a bull or a goat or a bird, the smell of blood is, is incredibly unpleasant to some people. Some people it doesn't seem to bother, but some people are very sensitive to it. Uh, the smell of any animal waste that would have to uh, be cleaned up that would come as part of this. There, there are things that would not be pleasant. God wanted it to smell good. And he says, hey, constantly burn this. Make this a pleasant place to be. One of the big debates that's gone on in the last several years in churches has been, you know, does God care if the lighting is good? Does God care if there's um, really creative things happening in the design or the, the ambience of the room? Well, apparently he cares a little bit because he was very bent on them having this uh, fragrant offering constantly going. God cares about those things. So I, I can take that as a principle and say at some level God cares. I don't think God cares whether the lights are on or off during worship particularly, but he cares if it makes a difference for people. Just a thought. Then in verse 11, he says, The Lord says to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites, count them, and each one must pay the Lord a ransom of his life at that time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to do those already counted, or each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give half a shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. This half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over 20 years old or more are to give an offering to Yahweh. The rich are not to give more than half a shekel and the poor are not to give less. When you make the offering to Yahweh, to atone for your lives, receive the ransom of the atonement money from the Israelites to use it for the service of the tent of meeting. And it will be a memorial for the Israelites before Yahweh making atonement for your lives. What's going on here? Okay, so here's a few things. First of all, when I read this preparing for this podcast, 
I was like, wait a minute, wasn't there a prohibition against counting the people? So I did some research. And certainly, David counted the people. He did a census of the people, and he received the, the judgment of God for it. But it wasn't because he did the count. It was because he did the count without taking this half a shekel ransom offering. That was the issue. The Jewish prohibition against censuses is not biblical. In fact, uh, I was reading uh, a, a rabbi. He doesn't, he's not a Christian. He does not believe Jesus is a Messiah. Uh, I, I hope and pray that he does. But I was reading a, a rabbi kind of giving a scholarly appraisal of where this all comes from. And he says, honestly, this is just rabbinic tradition. There was one rabbi who taught that they shouldn't do sentences because there's this uh, thing that about a plague. You know, if you do this wrong, there could be a plague. So he says, hey, we don't want a plague. So let's not do this wrong because David did it. King David did it wrong and it, and it caused trouble. So let's just not ever do a census. What's interesting, and this is always true about religious people, is they'll find a way around things. So then other rabbis came along later and they said, well, you know, you can't count the people, but you could count their fingers. One rabbi actually had like a mathematical formula. He says, you can't count the people. Uh, and it says here uh, in verse 14, those 20 years or more, but you can count their kids. And then you can figure the average amount of kids in the average family and use a mathematical formula to figure out how many people there are. Mm, people. We'll, we'll find, we'll create a rule that has nothing to do with the Bible. It's just tradition or the opinion of man. It's not biblical. Christians do this all the time, by the way. They, we create a rule, and maybe there was some well-intentioned reason for it, but we create a rule, and then once we've put this rule in place and put it over and above what God actually says, then we try to find ways around it. People do this all the time. I have no interest in creating extra rules because it's hard enough to keep the things that God said. God said, hey, every so often you're going to need to count yourself. Every so often, you're going to need to know how many people you got. Every so often, you're going to need to know certain things. When you do, here's how you're supposed to do it. Now, it's interesting that he says you are to give to the Lord a half shekel. The idea was in the ancient times, do you remember uh, when Jesus was born? You know, in Luke chapter one, it was decreed that C by Caesar Augustus that there would be a census taken. And the idea was it was a flex. Caesar Augustus was saying, I am your Lord and you have to do whatever my whim is. And he's declaring ownership over these peoples in his lands, in his empire. That was the issue with King David when he took the census without taking that half shekel ransom payment is, is that David was saying, these are my people. No, Israel was God's holy people. God's people. They weren't their own people. They weren't a king's people. They were God's people. It's interesting. I have, over the years, met people who try to claim, even if they don't outright say it, but they certainly act like it, that America is the new Israel. We are like the new chosen nation that God is using in this world. And yet, I think they would have a hard time with the idea that they aren't their own people. No, we're by the people for the people. Well, if you're, if you're going to claim Israel status, then read what it says here. Also, I have some friends that would have a hard time with this, where it says that the rich are not to pay more and the poor are not to pay less. Is this God's prescription for a general tax policy? I don't believe so. 
I do believe this. I believe that generally speaking, there are universal principles that the scripture speaks to. And then we try to work them out as best we can in our modern world. Now, I was talking to a friend recently and he had bumped on something. Uh, he had heard somebody teaching through the Bible and um, they had talked about, uh, you, you know, in, in the book of Ruth where the poor people could come and glean the leftover grain from the fields. They weren't supposed to harvest everything. They were supposed to leave the corners unharvested and anything that fell to the, the floor of the field, uh, they weren't supposed to go back and clean up. They were supposed to leave that for those who didn't have anything. And so he was making the argument for sort of a, you know, Christians should be in favor of a welfare system and for universal medicine and the whole thing. I certainly think there may well be an argument for that. I'm not making a statement one way or the other. I also don't think it's a mandate. I think there could be a principal idea and then we try to figure out how to work it out. I, I'm open to those conversations. I also think that this isn't necessarily like a command of how to do like a flat tax, which I, some of my conservative friends would try to say. I have progressive friends that use Ruth as an argument for socialism and universal, uh, universal medicine and uh, UBI, universal basic income. And then I have conservative friends who use this verse and try to make it an argument for the flat tax. I don't think God is on the side of your politics. I think God is just making some general statements. And in this case, each person had to acknowledge that God was their true king, and that they were the people of God. That was what was going on. Whether you were rich or poor, you had to acknowledge who God was in your life. Now, that being said, I would say this. Even though that in this one case there was a flat tax, that was not the general principle across the board in Israel. There were all kinds of places that you could argue would be more along the lines of a progressive tax. So, I look for the big principles and I try to leave the politics out of it because what happens is somebody has a political view one way or the other and then they try to make the Bible justify it. I don't have any interest in that. I want to serve God and I want God's heart. And in this instance, I believe that what God is, is speaking to is this idea that every person has to stand before them. That every person has to stand and recognize who God is. And either they give God his due, give that half shekel, acknowledging that the, the coin didn't save them. It was the heart, the acknowledgement of who God was and who God is and his position and his place. Or you choose not to and you do the census without it and you say, we aren't owned by God. We are our own people. Or we give our allegiance to a human and not to God. The last thing that's interesting here is that it says everyone 20 or older. There is a question in terms of this idea of an age of accountability. Um, when is a person accountable before God? And many people say, well, the Jews do the, the bar mitzvahs and the bat mitzvahs at 12. Jesus went to the temple at age 12. So 12, that's the, yeah, that, that's the age of accountability. But here it says age 20. I don't believe that we have a biblical age at which Every person is therefore accountable to God. I tend to believe in sort of a sliding scale. I think it's very individualized. At what point is someone accountable to God and is what point is somebody too young? And if they died, you know, when they were three, um, that they're in heaven just because, you know, they were too young to make a decision. I don't know. I trust in the goodness of God. I trust in the fairness of God. I trust in the grace of God. 
I don't believe that a little baby that dies, like my, my cousin Katie died just a few hours after being born. I don't believe that there's any danger of her not being in heaven. Don't believe that for a minute. There's no part of me that believes that because I know the love and the grace and the mercy of God. I know this, if you're over 20 years old, I think there'd be very few outside of very special circumstances who wouldn't be past the age of accountability. And certainly I would say many probably by age 12 are in that place where you stand or fall before God on your own and you and only you can decide who Jesus is in your life. And are you running towards him or are you running away from him? Verse 17 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze basin with a bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so they will not die. When they approach the altar to minister by presenting food offerings to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and feet so they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. What's the principle here? I'm so thankful that God established these things for the people because if you just lived by God's commandments in a day and age where they did not have knowledge about viruses and bacteria, where they did not have an awareness of food safety, uh, by any you know measure of things, I'm not like a high level standard. I don't have like a PhD in food science, but because of a career I used to have, I'm fairly knowledgeable on food safety. Uh, I've gone to a lot of trainings paid for by my, the company I was working for so that I could be an ex, you know, at least a, a, a general expert, knowledgeable in food safety, and then I could train others in it. Everything I read about the hygiene and the, the you know, hey, you've been sacrificing animals and now you're going to go present this food offering to the Lord. But before you go in, I want you to wash your hands, wash your feet. The places where, I mean, if you're living in an ancient culture and there's not, you know, uh, sewage, you know, and stuff like that, your feet could be covered in all kinds of bacterias and, and pathogens. And so this idea of washing, you, you, if you had lived by the rules that God established for food and for uh, ceremonial washing and so on, you would have lived a fairly healthy life relative to everyone else around you in the ancient world. If you live by God's laws, I remember a friend of mine was so proud of how responsible, quote unquote, he felt he was being that he went and got tested every month for STDs. And I said, you know, I've never had once the need to be tested for an STD. And I'm not bragging. I'm not trying to like say, oh, look at me, because I'll be the first to confess that that God has had to purify me from sexual sin. But I was a virgin when I went to my wedding day. And I didn't have to be tested because I wasn't engaging in, in activities that God would call sinful, but that just public health would say are risky. If you, if you lived according to all of the rules that God set up, STD is not an issue. Foodborne outbreaks and illnesses greatly reduced, if not an issue at all, right? The animals that God said you could eat were the animals that are generally safe for humans to be around. The animals that God called unclean, pork, shellfish. You know anybody with a shellfish allergy? Did you know that the, um, the, the Spanish influenza, 19, uh, 1919, was probably transmitted to humans from pork farms in Kansas 
and then spread as as young men went to war in World War One, and then it circulated, and that's where it got the Spanish influenza name, and then it came back even stronger. If you just follow these rules, there's protection and safety. And the more that I live in, in God's ways, I really do believe, generally speaking, it's not always easier, it's sometimes harder, but it is always for blessing and benefit. Well, our time draws to an end once again. I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study, a teaching podcast currently going through the book of Exodus. Faith on Hill is a church in Milwaukee, Oregon that gathers every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We are in person uh, during the summer. We are out in our field enjoying the weather. We have pop-up tents for shade, and everybody just brings a lawn chair or beach blankets. Uh, Starting in September, we'll be back in our building, gathering every Sunday morning. Small groups will be restarting up. You can check out our website, faithonhill.com. Our social media, at Faith on Hill. Audio versions of this podcast are available on Apple Music and Spotify. Video versions are available on our Facebook page. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill Church. And I want to thank you for joining us for another 20-minute Bible study.